0: Welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Joining me today is Enoch Lee. So Enoch is the founder of Beripi and helps multinational companies, governments and startups across the Asia-Pacific and Europe to navigate organizational changes using creative learning and stress management strategies. She's a former executive that experienced burnout and depression early in her career, and her work focuses on helping others to avoid making the same mistake. She's the author of a number of books, most recently Stress in the City, and her work has featured on Forbes and a number of other, pardon me, leading publications. Enoch, welcome to the Jacobs podcast.
1: Thank you. Great to be here today.
0: Excellent. And I should mention, too, that you're actually currently in Singapore, um, but you're based in Hong Kong. Is that right?
1: I'm based in Beijing.
0: Oh, okay. Excellent.
1: Beijing. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. That's it. No, sorry about that. I hope... A friend in Hong Kong, so I just immediately impulsively go there for that No, part no worries. I, I,
1: I am originally from Hong Kong as well, so not too far off.
0: Yeah, excellent. Okay, great. <laughs> well, look, you know, when I told someone I was doing a yeah. podcast with you, um, the term avoiding burnout um, sparked their immediate interest. So I really look forward to this. I think it's just going to be very timely, and. Okay. Um, Great. Look, and just to begin, I think it's just important to make a distinction between depression and burnout. So you experience both, it seems, but tell me a little bit about your experience first and perhaps how some people might experience burnout but not depression and even just vice versa as well.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I think it, like you say, it's quite important to make a distinction and also even to make a distinction between because um, a lot of people say the phrase, oh, I feel so depressed, um, but that is also not the same as clinical depression. Uh, what I experienced and was diagnosed with in 2009, end of 2009, was clinical depression. And if we look at the definitions according to the World Health, uh, sorry, the DSM diagnostic uh, manual that the American Psychological Association has, um, mm-hmm. We hit five or more symptoms under that list for a consecutive two weeks. So some of those symptoms could be things like losing our appetite or suddenly eating a lot, um, losing sleep or sleeping a lot, being really lethargic, uh, losing interest in things that we like to do before. Um, Perhaps some people express it as anger or aggression and some people really retreat and withdraw. Um, loss of sex um, interest, for example, and also um, thoughts of harming oneself. Uh, so, when I was diagnosed, I was um, because I was in denial for a long time. Um, by the time I was diagnosed, I was quite severe, um, and my psychologist used the Bex uh, Infantry to diagnose it. So, I'd say clinical depression is something that can be diagnosed with a list of symptoms, um, and also if you look at it from a more biological perspective, then There are a lot of studies on how the chemical levels are in the body or not. um, Most predominantly, I think, serotonin. And that, of course, has a lot of its own controversies. Um, Whereas burnout, as I look back actually on on my journey, I think I had experienced burnout um, throughout my time but hadn't quite identified it. Um, And so burnout is more defined as an overwhelming sense um, of fatigue or a sense of I can't do this anymore. It seems like a lot on my plate. Um, and I think burnout is now also becoming more and more recognized. As it is a state of mind. Um, I wouldn't quite say it's a mental health illness or mental or mood disorder as depression is, but it is a state of mind or a state of feeling um, so tired. I seem to not be able to get enough sleep, there's not much energy just no self-motivation anymore. So that would be more of a state of burnout. I think the gray area there is a lot of people will feel burnout, that, oh, I can't do this anymore, it's too tiring, Um, I don't like my job, or I I don't want to wake up in the morning. And the danger there is I think burnout could easily slide into depression, but that's the gray area of, okay, where where do we cut that line? and to realise I don't have the answer. And then really, I think that is for a professional psychologist or psychiatrist to to have to diagnose each person on a case by case basis. I think a lot of people tend to go on the the internet and say, "Oh, okay, I have all these symptoms, then I must be depressed, right?" So, so yeah. that's those are the things I would caution really against. That you know, there are ways to diagnose, and unless we actually get a proper diagnosis, it's hard to say. Well, then how do I cope with it? And so people can be burnt out, but not clinically depressed. Or like myself, by the time I was clinically depressed, I was way beyond burnout.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. So do you think, Enoch, in your experience, you'd put... So in terms of you were actually quite, like I mentioned in the intro, um, very successful professionally. You ticked Mm. a lot of professional boxes. Um, You were working hard and things were going sort of quite well for you professionally, but then you... Mm. um, Obviously, you experienced burnout and then kind of pushed yourself into depression. Is mm. that correct?
1: Yes, I, I'd say that's a very correct description. Um, mm. And I like to sum it up in some ways. Of, uh, I think back then I, I overestimated my ability to cope with the stress because the burnout in, in essence was a, a manifestation of I could not cope with the stress anymore. Um, and then I also underestimated my environment and the effect it had on me.
0: Sure. The um, I think sometimes you can get that idea that um, you know, you kind of expected to push through the burnout, perhaps, mm. and you need that element of persistence. But then, obviously, it's a very tricky balance. You alluded to, you know, where you kind of need to not get online, but actually um, get some professional expert mm. to look at. Um, Things, But, yeah, I do think it's a tricky thing because, you know, a lot of the time there's that expectation to push yourself and not that just your professional obligations have but that you can have on yourself too to just sort Mm. of like um, put your problems in your back pocket and just sort of soldier on, which I think is a good – like I like that idea of bigger and drive and initiative and and just Mm. um, grit as well. Um, But then, yeah, you just have to be kind of careful about finding that, that balance um, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Um, and do you see um, any, is there any sort of difference that you see in the cultural terrain that you sort of cover? Like say you're, you know, you're in Singapore, is there any yeah. difference between that and Beijing or you do have an Australian connection as well or, yeah. and, or the United States and across cultures?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think um, I, I do notice a difference across cultures and um, at the risk of, Maybe overgeneralizing a bit um, because we do know cultures could, you know, when we talk mm. about cultures, there could be stereotypes and um, mm-hmm. generalizations, but in some ways, these stereotypes exist for a reason. So mm. I'd say in some ways, the way we grow up in Singapore, China, uh, mainland China and Hong Kong um, are quite similar in the sense of you know, what you just talked about, that sense of grit, uh, that sense of we've got to push through. And yet, I think perhaps it, we we push through coming a bit less from the angle of grit, but more from, I cannot admit defeat, or it may bring shame to the family, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of cultural elements there of the pride, the faith, the sort of, um, I, I need to be the trophy child. Uh, my parents mm-hmm. have invested so much in bringing me up, and obviously with the economics and the, situ- and the political context of each country. Um, mm-hmm. When I grew up, you know, my, my parents were middle class, sandwich class. We didn't have a lot, but we had enough to send me to school. And so in those contexts, the way to um, to be outstanding was through education, for example. So we we worked so hard just to get that 100 out of 100, whereas um, and I can share this anecdote. Um, my husband is from Australia, and I lived in Perth when I was very young as well for about three years. So that's the Australian connection. But we were mm. discussing one time about um, schoolwork and you know getting prizes and scholarships and and you know, our grades. And he told me when he was in school in Australia, there were two grades. There was the grade for the content, how like how many answers you got correct, and there was also a grade for effort. And he said his parents always looked at the effort grade. And if that was good enough and he made a lot of effort, it didn't really matter what the other grade was. And I started laughing. I said, but then what's the point of, you know, even if you tried really hard and failed, then what's Story the point? Yep, <laughs> right? yeah. And so, you know, and, and that for me was a huge cultural mindset of, um, you know, I, I don't think I ever even thought about it until he mentioned that. And mind you, I was, you know, in my 30s by then. And so for 30 years, I had gone through life. And and I dare say a lot of people in my generation out here in Asia, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Beijing, Shanghai, you know, we, we grew up with the mindset of only the end grade matters, only the end result matters. So so we we do tend to push through without actually thinking, well, you know, am I going too far? Am I pushing myself too far? Because in some sense, in my mind, there is no pushing myself too far. There is only the results.
0: Yeah, and that's a really interesting observation about the sort of the cultural elements like the pride, Mm. the face, and then the premium placed, as you say, on the results and the the end result because I think that's certainly something that you can see with... I guess, you know, we're constantly told that it's the, you know, I guess, you know, making sales, it's the end result that matters, mm. it's, you know, business is cutthroat or just that professionally things are very competitive but then there's a whole back end where you have to look at the quality and the calibre yeah. of your inputs and all that sort of thing. So I think that's just a really, you know, interesting conversation in itself about just the cultural expectations around, mm. um, you know, being an individual and in the different contexts. But... Yep. um Someone commented to me the other day here in Australia oh. that whenever we see a public scandal involving someone, oh. so it's either a disgrace, this is back on the mental health and the depression sure. and out front, but whenever we see sort of a public scandal like a, you know, a disgraced sports star or a politician and so on, um, you just get this immediate response after that they when they apologise is that they actually say that they're depressed and I'm not mm-hmm. saying people use it as an excuse and that it doesn't have a genuine effect on Someone or a person's decisions, but in your short ebook on your website called Pull Yourself Together, which I highly recommend, um, mm. there's some examples in there of how many people can live with depression but can actually maintain incredibly mm. disciplined lives. Um, and I just found that super interesting. And, you know, we know mm. a lot of famous people have. You know, people like Winston yep. Churchill reportedly had depression, and um, yep. you know he arguably saved the Western world in, in World War yep. II. But, uh, you know, it's it's very interesting. But there's some great examples in that ebook. Yep. So um, you know, people just not I'd suggest making poor decisions, but still having depression. So can you just shed some light on this? Sure, you
1: sure. I think also in in terms of clinical depression, I mentioned earlier you know, when I was diagnosed, I was considered a severe case. So even as diagnosed with, um, mine was a um, major depressive disorder. So even under depression, there are a few different kinds, and then there are also different scales of depression. So um, a lot of people, um, sad to say, but I think it also is part of a reality, is um, people live with mild depression. Uh, so mild depression could be exhibited where you know there is all those symptoms, but they're not intense enough to actually avoid the function. Uh, sorry, to prevent the functioning of a person in the in the normal course of life. Right, so yes, they can still get up, get into the subway, go to work, you know, perform kind of okay at work, and then come home. Like they they still function, um, and I think in some ways. A, I probably, I'd say, have existed in that state of mind at some point before and after my very serious uh, depressive episode because even after that I had a few periods of time where um, I really felt very low and then I did go back to see my therapist and he said, okay, you may be in mild depression. But during those days, I was still productive um, and if I would arguably say I was even more creative around those times, like I produced a lot more writing i could I could think more, and I was much more reflective um, and i produced i think that was part of the time when I produced that ebook as well that you mentioned and sure. so so in some ways that there, there are i think there are lots of people who do go about their lives with mild depression, whether they know it or not, and then there are also people who perhaps biologically just exist with that condition of they have um, less chemical levels in their body, so they will be diagnosed as depressed um, for a long time. I was one of those lucky ones where I had a major episode for, say, almost a year or two, and then I came out of it, and then I did go back, but never quite as seriously. Um, Perhaps after having my kids, there were moments of time, a month or so, so it's also... I think some people also think about depression as, oh, it's, it's like a cold, right? You get over it. Um, but then they don't make the link of, well, we can have colds a lot of times in our lives, right? They think of, well, if you've had depression and you get out of it, then it never happens to you again. Um, and I don't think it's quite like that. And even if we take the analogy of having cold, we can have a cold where we have sniffles and we can still go to work, where we can also have a really serious cold and we have a fever and we have to lie in bed for a week. So I think if we take that analogy, it may be helpful to understand a bit better if, you know, we can still function with depression, same as for some people with bipolar disorder or anxiety issues as well.
0: Sure. And do you... Um, so, it's yeah, you kind of – the things that I've read about depression is that you kind of – you never really get out of the woods. As you say, it sort mm. of goes through these seasons and, it you know, you're not going to not have colds again or get the sniffles mm. and, you know, you can get crook. Um, but do you, you don't have to go into too much personal um, stuff if you don't mm. have to. But just mm. in terms of rituals and routines, did you have mm. to set up a few things to try and identify it, um, overcome it, or just things that you do each day? Or do you know – people who have to set up rituals and that kind of thing?
1: Um, I do I do know people who have taken to things like meditation, for example, or they're very strict on their exercise routine because obviously exercise regulates the body and chemicals and hormones and all that. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I, I think one of those really big warning signs for me, which I learnt to now pay attention to after my depression, Is um, And I believe that the mind emotions and the physical body are very connected. And when I start to get these very tense um, tinglings around the back of my neck, uh, when I start to feel tense between my eyes on my forehead, that for me is my sign of, okay, I think I'm a little bit stressed out at the moment or what is it trying to tell me? Um, am I really pushing myself too far? Can I go that extra mile or I just need to go to bed and sleep it off? Um, and because when I went through my depression, I also had migraines and they got very, very bad to the extent that I was I was throwing up, I was debilitated, I would get dizzy and I could faint and black out for a moment. Um, and I think... Those were an extreme expression by the body of we need to shut down now, right? We need to shut down. It's like the computer having run for too long and it just needs to shut down and rest the machine mm-hmm. for a bit. And mm-hmm. um, and so for me, my ritual is a lot more around sensing my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also since l- started learning Chinese calligraphy, which perhaps is my way of my going into the zone and, and meditation and just being in that moment, so to speak, Um, because in practicing Chinese calligraphy, uh, it was also a journey from kind of going, it's not about just writing the perfect character to just the process of, you know, associating with the ink and um, and feeling my hands and brush and all of that. And so for me, it's a ritual of, I'd say a ritual of introspection and reflection through different mediums. And that's really important for me.
0: Sure. And that's a, like a mindfulness kind of technique is to try yeah. and sort of have experience the sensations in the moment and, um, at the time. And I think that's something that's, you know, the meditation thing is, you know, incredibly tricky to do I think these days Mm. when we have such short attention spans and are just constantly moving and going. But one of the things you mentioned which was interesting and you could do a whole podcast on this episode (laughs) is just uh, on on this topic but it's the idea of, um, you know, just that sort of mild, having that mild form of it um, Mm. was able to, you know, like there was a bit of a a creativity there, like Mm. a creative emphasis on, um, you know, that you're, you're writing some of your stuff and, um, you know, I think that's something that you see in a lot of kind of um, not geniuses but very creative people that mm. you see a sort of side to them that produces this wonderful yep. work. But then you can find out that there's some pretty flawed characters in a lot of ways. And, um, sure. Yeah, I think that's just really an interesting um, topic in itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, but one of the things... That jumped out to me when reading about you was this idea of reaching all your goals when you're young. And, Uh, um, you know, when you're fresh out of school or you're a young professional, you run hard at your goals and, um, sometimes you achieve them and it doesn't feel as fulfilling as you thought. I think we've all, everyone's experienced uh, that to some degree. But in my book, Winners Don't Cheat, I write about this idea of false crest where, you know, back in these back in school days when I'd go on a school camp, you'd reach uh, the top of a mountain but then you'd just find out it was the hill on the side of a mountain that more had to be climbed. So um, it's totally dispiriting, but um, (laughs) the chapter I mentioned, this focus on staying competitive and generating wider goals that align with family, faith, community and friends. But can you talk us through why reaching some goals isn't fulfilling and how to generate fulfilling goals?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I found um, the and, and thank you for sending that chapter to me. Like, I find the uh, whole metaphor of climbing the mountains and these false Crest really interesting. And I I did start chuckling to myself when I read it. I'm like, yeah, I'm exactly the same. Um, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's also you know the the sad bit of that laughter is understanding that actually we've got countries of people who are going through this at this very moment who would feel the same and then they just spend their life, um, like you say, just on that treadmill, um, not knowing where they're actually running towards. Um, And I I did a lot of introspection about this over the years. And in some ways, that's why I'm quite thankful for my depression, because it really made me stop and think like it, it shut down a whole... I guess maybe about ninety percent of the rest of my life, and just ten percent of okay, you haven't really thought about yourself. Now let's focus on yourself. And through that, what I started to understand was, um, I mean, we can go into a whole whole four years of conversation on you know childhood and how that's affected me and all of that. And I think childhood does, a, well, it's a matter of how we grew up or our parents. And and I don't think it's all that because I think after. We come into adult life, we do have the freedom to make these choices ourselves. Now, the challenge there or what I experienced was when I did come into my adult life and had the freedom to choose and the freedom to decide for myself or perhaps less dependent on my parents, I didn't actually think about these questions for myself. I didn't actually ask myself, what am I doing and why am I doing this? And then as I went through my reflective journey through the depression I started to I mean in the beginning there was a lot of anger and resentment because I do get in touch with a feeling of why isn't anything I do good enough right? why isn't this job good enough for my parents why isn't this um, why, why isn't this award good enough and I can trace back to so many uh, examples during school time of why isn't 95 out of 100 good enough right so I, I started to internalize the idea that I am not good enough or everything I do is mm-hmm. inadequate. And then I start to ask myself, well, what is good enough? Or when will I be good enough? And it's always it's it's hard to say. There isn't a very concrete answer or anything. But what it did get me in touch with was a lot of my actions or chasing these goals and achievements was stemmed from this fear of not being good enough, which then mm-hmm. when I sit back and look at it, I'm like, well, no one's actually really told me I'm not good enough. Um, evidence has shown that you know, I may not have a billion followers, but I've got enough people reading my books. It seems like from the comments, I'm helping people, which is what I would like to do. Um, I have a nice family. I have good friends. They seem to give me good feedback. So you know, where is this idea of not being good enough come from? Right. And then once I started tracing back to all of that and understanding, it seems to be an irrational fear in me, just somewhere hiding in the unconscious mind. And so whenever I reach a goal, um, and I can share this with you, like once I, I hadn't actually held my book, my latest book, Stress in the City, until a few days ago. And I asked my publisher to send it to me to Singapore, uh, because the book only even just came out a few weeks ago in the UK. And when I opened the box, I was so excited and I took the book and I like, you know, I looked at the cover and I caressed it a little bit like, oh, it's so nice. And then I flipped through my book and a split second, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I wrote that. Oh my God, that's such a bad sentence. And I just started criticizing every single word I wrote in that book and I started to cringe. And then I sat down and I laughed at myself. I'm like, my not good enough fear is coming back again. And I think that's what it is for me. Perhaps I'll never get over that I'm not good enough fear. Um, It may exist for a reason. Perhaps on the flip side, it really pushes me to excel and improve. And then on the irrational side, it just kind of, I just dampen down my own mood for no reason at all. But at least now I can identify and say, okay, I am criticizing my own book because of this irrational fear. And once I can um, pull those two things apart and distinguish and ask myself, look, is it really objectively how much more I can do to improve? And if I had slacked off and I hadn't done it, then okay, I I feel like I can give myself a good scolding. But if like my husband said, you know, I have tried my best, then at least I can give myself some credit of, okay, I did try my best. And in some sense, then, it breaks down the whole idea of achieving goals, right? Because it's like, okay, I have done it. It's here, right here, and people have bought the book. Um, So what else am I going on about? And I think that kind of self-realization is helping me understand or make sense of my last 30 or so years of, you know, why I never found reaching a goal fulfilling, because even before I reached it, I had discounted it already
0: yeah that's interesting because I think um that idea of gratitude that you mentioned is mm. is you know stop and identify stopping and identifying um, things that you've achieved and recognizing that you've done you know yeah. the best that you can do is just um, you know, that's something you kind of need to build in. But I think there's a a bit of that too. You know, when you're young, this is my experience, that Uh. when you're sort of unhappy with your situation and, you know, a lot of my book, Winners Don't Cheat, is about, you know, building skills, education versus employability, trying to find Uh. your aptitude. And, uh, you know, one of the key motivators for me getting better was actually an intolerance of my circumstances. And I think mm. like that's the whole reason why, you, in my instance, where I created, you know, expectations, I created goals, you know, mm. a roadmap, a vision to improve and get better. Um, yeah. because of, you know, like I wasn't happy with my current circumstances. And I think there's obviously nothing kind of wrong with that, but then it can be, you know, you've got to enjoy the journey, you know, and not so much yeah. the, or, you know, the goals and the ticking off the boxes because otherwise right. you're just sort of in for a life of false crests and I like the <laughs> idea of, you know, mm-hmm. why, what am I doing? Why am I doing it that you mentioned? And, um, yep. yeah, and I think, yeah, there's just a lot in there that, um, you know, and look, I appreciate the, the part on the texture of the book and, you know, being mm-hmm. excited to open it and that's really interesting too. <laughs> um, and then just that criticism that you have with looking back and thinking, oh, gosh, why did I write this or yeah. like, And I and yeah, like I I think even in that though, my you know, like it would be um, kind of like what your husband's. It's like you put that out, you know, like that's what you've you've said at the time, and you've done Mm -hmm. your absolute utmost at the time, and that's what you wanted to broadcast to the world. And I think you know, there's that's something because how I would have looked at it in my own instance, is like, oh, gosh, is this what, you know, I put this out there and I can't change Mm. it and I can't alter it. And then, um, But then, you know, at the same time, that that in itself is kind of like reaching a a sort of false goal in the sense that um, there's, you know, this sounds harsh, but probably like in my own case, like not a lot of people would care what I've written entirely. Like it matters Mm. to me what I've written and, you know, um, It, it's not, you put these huge expectations on what you've written and yeah. think, oh gosh, and then this is going to happen, that's going to happen, but then it doesn't. And I think mm. there's probably a bit in there about sort of um, confronting fears and all that sort of stuff. But I guess, yeah, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that nothing's sort of what it's cracked up to be, I guess. And no. even, in, you know, even with your goals, yes to a degree, but then even with your written work as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, as I was listening to you chat, I I don't know if you share the same feeling too because what you said also made me think about, well, part of um, that, in quotations, the fulfillment, seems to come from an external source of, Mm. um, well, do people take it seriously or will they even care about the two books that we've written with our blood and sweat, right? Sure, yeah. And it also just made me think of, um, which I, I know for myself too, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking for approval from outside sources um, mm. and not so much trusting my own approval of myself, or mm. in, in some ways, almost like how much am I worth is dependent on how much people tell me I'm worth. Um, mm. And so, going also through that journey of breaking down some of that mindset, um, I'd say, you know, in, in some ways, um that that helps with putting the goal in context of that's not just the only thing
0: Mm. Mm. yeah yeah sure and i think you know it's what we i mentioned before about you know we have such distracted um lives now and short attention Mm -hmm. spans and sort of finding that solitude or that internal reflection to work out um Mm -hmm. you know what does it mean to me and is this fulfilling and why am i doing it and um, that satisfaction and one one of the things that arrives with that distraction is looking at the success of others too and mm. you know, i just know that's so dangerous to do because it kind of you immediately when you start doing that that comparison to others is is um you you undermine your own successes and then you immediately, yep. immediately it's like a, it's a surefire recipe to feel glum and um, yep. really bad about what you've you've done because, um, yeah, again, you'll be on this journey to false crests and yeah. it actually pushes you back into that thing about results, like that expectation yeah. of, like, well, it doesn't matter kind of how you fit, how many sales have you, you know, generated, how many, um, you know, hits do you have, what's your website traffic like, yeah. all that sort of stuff that, yep. you know, those KPIs matter. Um, but, you know, if you're comparing them to someone else, then, um, it's a yeah, just a surefire recipe to just feel miser- miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the um, and one of the um, I wanted to just ask you about. I think <clears throat> coming into your thirties, I do note that that's sort of a key time. Like I think in your twenties, if you can sort of a lot of people power through, they reach their goals. Oh. They there's a lot of excitement, but then you know you come into your thirties, your obligations change. Um, that excitement of your 20s is behind you you're a lot more reflective from you know what i read of the literature and um Mm -hmm. you know you mentioned your parents and used to look back and the expectations and things like that and your 30s apparently is a time when that sort of happens um you know in terms of just being more reflective and Mm. um, the gloss has worn off a lot of things do you think there's any um like what are your thoughts there about is there any difference to mitigate that in your 30s versus any at any other stage in your life or mm. is it the same sort of um, things that you've just outlined? Yeah.
1: I think there is some sort of correlation there because um, if we look into um series of adult development um, such as by psychologists like Erickson or some people yeah. that I really like reading into is uh, one author called Daniel Levinson and another one called Robert Keegan. You know, they talk a lot about adult development stages because in kids you know we, we like when do we learn that our finger is ours but i think for adults it's a lot more about who are we and how we relate to our outside world it's also a lot about well how do we um, how, how do we maintain our own identity in relation to the outside world because i think in our 20s i'd say also a generalization. A lot of us, we're trying to fit into social norms. We're trying to find ourselves in a group. Um, do we have mm-hmm. friends? Do people like us? Um, you know, Do we have the titles we want? And, and all of that. Whereas um, there seems to be a trend towards around age 30, especially early 30s markers. I think a lot of people start reflecting on, well, why am I following the herd? Or is this the herd I want to follow, even if I want to follow the herd? So it goes a lot from... Mm-hmm. And I think the term is, you know, a self authoring stage of, okay, this is the life I want to lead and this is how I'm gonna go. And I think perhaps sometimes those feelings of melancholy or depression comes into realizing you know, it's almost like a, like 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 putting those years behind us to see of to look back and say, Oh, okay, those decisions weren't the greatest decisions I've made. And so I think there is a sense of loss there or a sense of pity Um, I don't quite believe it when people say they have no regrets. I mean, it may not be a regret to that extent, but I do think we will have some sort of subconscious or unconsciousness of, oh, you know, it could have been another way. Um, And so around the thirties, when we're looking for our identity and really moving into, you know, some of the things you said, you know, we start thinking about building a family. Do I want a family or not? Who am I going to be as a mother? And, oh my God, I'm still struggling with that idea of, you know, who am I as a mother? What is my role as a mother? And Mm -hmm. we, With all these reflections, I think it could bring us down because we start to see ourselves in a different light, right? And it's almost a way of breaking away from old habits and then moving into the new ones. And in some ways, I think it's normal or even I'd say I think it's useful to go through some of those uh, mild, melancholy moods because Mm. those really, at least in my experience, they really get us thinking as Mm. long as we identify and acknowledge them because I have also seen a lot of people who just deny those feelings um, or they um, or they turn very quickly to say, nope, it's okay, everything's going to be okay. right? And I think there is a difference between having hope and knowing that, yes, it will work out versus just completely denying ourselves of the emotions that we feel at that moment in time. Um, mm. So I do think... You know, in the 30s, it's one stage, and then if you read their theories, also around 45, it's another stage of, I think, mm-hmm. in those stage, we're looking a lot more about, you know, what is the legacy I'll leave behind, right? We Most people by then have had their family, have had their kids if they wanted to, and then it's like, well, what is my legacy? What have I actually done in the, last, in the first half of my life, and how am I going to spend the second half of my life, um, especially with life expectancy getting longer and longer? It's like, well... You know, I'm not going to retire in 10 years anymore. What next? So then I think those spark off different questions. Um, and then maybe we can touch base in another 30 years and we can talk about how it will feel <laughs> when we're all <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair yeah. enough.
0: Look, I hope podcasting's still around then.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, but um, yeah, that's interesting. So it's sort of like moving. I think it's David Brooks that mentioned mm. this, um, but it's sort of like that moving from years kind of professional CV to your legacy CV, I think. And, um, yeah, very interesting. So, you know, your newest book is called Stress in the City. um, Mm -hmm. That, and In it you talk about a strategy that helped you and that's using toy bears as a creative pursuit and Mm -hmm. as a form of therapy to manage stress. It seems Mm -hmm. pretty interesting, but explain (laughs) to someone who might be a bit sceptical of such an approach. You might probably confront a few sort of... Mm -hmm. um, head-scratchers or people who might be a bit sceptical, but, yeah, how do you explain it?
1: No. Um, I think the easiest way to explain it is it is a form of play. Um, And what that means is most people, when they think about play, they may immediately think of games or toys or children, um, and not many think about what it means to be playful as an adult. And I think in my book what I talk about is, how is being playful a mindset and not so much how it gets exhibited? Because we have, or at least I have, done a lot of research into the psychology of play, and actually that's where what my whole work is based on, is um, a lot of academic journals and research talk about the importance of play, not just for kids. So I think for kids, most people will not dispute. You know That's how they learn, that's how they create, that's how they socialize. But a lot of people seem to forget that it is the same for adults. It's almost like, at some point, arbitrary moment in our lives. Then we go from being a kid to an adult and then we we, we stop to play. Um, Suddenly it seems like toys aren't accepted anymore. Um, If we bring a toy into office, for example, then we're called unprofessional. Whereas just yesterday, when we were still a kid, it was okay to carry it around in our school bag. Um, And so the whole premise of playfulness, I think there's lots of renowned psychologists who's done lots of writing about it and off the top of mind I can think of people like Dr. Stuart Brown who uh, founded the National Institute of Play in the US Um, the late Brian Sutton Smith he wrote a lot about the ambiguity of play and um, even in adults there's a lot of neuroscience research now as well where they mapped out the brain waves of when somebody is playing Um, the amount of activity in the right brain and the creativity and the learning that it can be correlated to is immense. So how people have documented mindfulness in some ways is the same way as people have documented playfulness. And so what's actually really interesting for me is like why is mindfulness so widely accepted but when I talk about play, usually I get, you know, you know, the head scratches that you 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 said. And also yeah, yeah, yeah. even sometimes people give me a frown or they roll their eyes and be like, she's crazy, right? Um, I take that, I'm okay to (laughs) be crazy, Um, and I think what it is, is by not being playful, or not thinking about play, we're actually ignoring some innate abilities that we were born with, Um, because kids are born, and they don't need anybody to teach them to play, and they just play. You put them in a room with nothing, they will be able to imagine something up. If you give them a spoon, they can pretend it's, I don't know, a crown or a magic wand. Um, so the imagination and creativity that happens in the process of play, um, it's so valuable that I think it needs to be brought back into the conscious mind and awareness of us boring adults. Um, and I'm not saying that most every adult is not playful. I have met very playful adults. And also in my experience, I find certain cultures more playful than others. And as adults, it can exhibit in different things like humor or wit. Um, People express it in different forms of, say, writing, in comics, in drawings, and and all of that. But when we come to talk about the toy bears that I have, um, and long story short, um, what they represented for me was my different bits that I didn't like about myself. Because every bear, as I went through my depression, had a name and a personality, And in the beginning, I didn't quite know what I was doing. I was just maybe in my own world, and despair made me smile, so we just got the bear. My boyfriend, who's now a husband, he got my first bear for me. And now as I look back and also through my organizational psychology studies, I started to understand what I was doing was a form of projection, um, which can be a defense mechanism if we go into Freudian speak, i.e., This is the part that I'm feeling. I don't really like it. So as a defense, I dump it onto somebody else or something else, which is what I did. I dumped it onto a toy bear. Now, how that helped me was I was able to externalize these potential threats to myself. For example, Fuzzy Bear. He was a banker bear. He is pretty snobbish and arrogant. He doesn't listen to people. And he just rushes around feeling like he's very important. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And if I look at him, I'm like, okay, I can see myself in that. I can see how I may have ticked people off um, in my banking days or I may have felt very important but actually just completely in my own mind. But it's hard to accept it if I just have to look at it through my own mirror and just to tell myself, yeah, I'm feeling really arrogant. Now, that's something very hard to do. But when I project it onto the bear, which looks kind of cute, then I'm like, okay, it's not so tough to be thinking about it right now. And I think the most important bit actually is thinking through it, but then being able to, after externalizing the threat, to reintegrate it, to say, okay, I've seen this as part of me. Um, Am I still like that? I don't know, but now I'm aware of it. And if I am, maybe I need to be told and just be called out. And then also, well, if this is something I want to change, then I can start changing that. So there is a whole which I now realize a whole psychological theory behind what I did with the bears. Um, and that's what I'm, I would like to uh, spread the message of um, to the wider audience. Now, it might not need to be a bear for other people. It could be other things. It could be a toy lion. It could be a toy car. It could be anything. And part yeah. of it is also understanding um, In a sense of how do we relate to these objects? How do we relate to these toys? Now that's a whole different other psychology realm there, Um, and because how we relate to objects and toys or things around us also tell us a lot about ourselves. It tells us, you know, what is our aesthetic value, for example, or if. I don't know, some people have kept a certain pen for 20 years because of some sentimental value or because it's the person who gave it to them. And a lot of times these things exist in our unconscious mind. Mm. But through the pen, then we can bring it into the conscious memory. And I think, if anything, it's very helpful for self-awareness. So to very hardcore skeptics, then I would turn to science and say, look, it's all proven in neuroscience, trust me. Um, and then for the less skeptical people my you know, my message would be you know just try it, just see and and see what it is and what it does for you, um, because there is no one right answer, but I do find that if we can engage with it, then perhaps we 'll find out something about ourselves that we never knew existed
0: mm-hmm. Well, definitely for me it would be my G.I. Joes when I was younger. That was my thing. I just remember stop, stopping to play with, like, playing with them because I, you know, was getting older and um, okay. who knows, I might dust them off and, or look for them and bring them out again. But um, yeah. actually when, when you were, um, when you were um, sort of unpacking things there, it just jumped out to me that obviously when you're playing with toys, like it's kind of that really is an exercise in mindfulness and you alluded to it. So there's like a meditative kind of, element to it that you're not distracted you're there you're fully absorbed in the activity mm-hmm. so um yeah that's a really interesting i never sort of thought about it that way but um yeah it's, i think you can definitely see some of the benefits there um yeah just when it comes to that mindfulness element of being present mm-hmm. and like as an activity that leads yeah. you back into the present and then being engaged um exactly. you know firing your creative neurons and all that sort of stuff but yeah. like not being distracted um as well which is um yeah, a really sort of creative way to look at it.
1: Yeah, and it's just uh, relaxing, you know, just a few minutes or seconds of it. It just relaxes you and then perhaps you'll feel a bit less out at that moment.
0: Yeah, definitely. The um, And sort of as we wrap up, so just coming to the end okay. of things, but I remember there's a great anecdote that Warren Buffett uses where he tells school students that if you only had one car for the rest of your life, then you'd treat it well and take very mm. good care of it so he says this is how you must look after yourself which is mm. I think it's a really really nice anecdote but um, just sort of what you know what are some of the tips you have for young professionals or just anyone in general um, just about mm. avoiding burnout in their careers and lives mm. Mm.
1: Uh, I think some of the more common ones we, we already know like you know exercising having a healthy diet and that sort of thing so I won't repeat those but I From my experience and in talking with a lot of people, I think one very important thing that we don't do enough of, um, perhaps because it is also in some ways challenging, is the thought of introspection. Um, And I think that is very important for not even just young professionals, just for anyone um, if we want to avoid burnout. Because I think burnout could be an aggregation of external factors, but a lot of it is how we face it from the inside, how we Perceive them, how we, how whether they are triggers of stress for us at all, and when I say introspection is, uh, it could be exhibited in or expressed in different forms. I, I write, so that's my introspection. Some people may dance, some people may draw pictures, whatnot. But in the introspection, I think those are the times we need to really take out a mirror, metaphorically, and say to ourselves, well, what is really going on? What about myself, am I struggling with? What can I not accept about myself? Or what is this habit that I keep on repeating that I know I shouldn't repeat? Like, what is deeper underneath it? And be able to be at least very open and courageous and honest to oneself, um, which is not easy to do. Um, and I think if we do more of that, we start practicing it and uh, just start asking ourselves. Um, I think. A, straightforward technique is to start asking ourselves why. Um, and there's a there's a way in say the culture profession or in in reflection of called the five whys. Um, and whatever answer we give ourselves is just just continuing asking why. And then seeing what comes up, how we feel, noting it down, keeping a record of it. And then starting to see the patterns of how we think. And once we can identify those patterns, then we can ask ourselves the question is this really how I want to keep thinking for the rest of my life? Right. And then, if not, then we can start looking for ways to change it and different ways for different people. Um, but I think that is one key step in not ending up just really jaded about life no motivation am i stuck in my job and um, am i stuck in this family you know what is going on with my life because i think sure. those start to become risky for burnout and even depression
0: sure mm. Look, that's a great um some great tips there to finish on and things to think about you know so just mm. how how can we direct people to your work and um, where can they find your mm. website and your book and that sort of thing
1: sure um My work business website is called Berapi, so it's B-E-A-R-A-P-Y dot M-E. And in there will be the links to my two free e-books that people are free to read and download however many times they want. No sign-ups, no marketing ploys there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also there is a link to um, my latest book, Stress in the City, if they want to order it online. Um, My publisher can ship worldwide I know it's also on Amazon UK and US. I'm hoping it will go to Australia soon, um, but we're yeah. also working on bringing it into China. And otherwise, if people uh, are interested in some of my other thoughts, I also have a blog called knockknock.com, N-O-C-H, N-O-C-H.com. So that's my pen name as well.
0: N-O-C-H, N-O-C-H.com. com And dot right. yeah, me. Excellent.
1: Yeah. B A R A P Y.
0: Great, gotcha. The A P Y, excellent. Well, I'll put those in the links to the show. But um, you know, you. Lee, thank you so much for joining thank us today you. on the Jacobs Podcast. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Really enjoyed the chat.
0: Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to that episode of the Jacobs Podcast. A reminder: if you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, to please leave a review or uh, share it with your friends. Um, and if you are after other podcasts, please go to seanjacobs.com.au and click on podcasts. And also that website has a lot of my written work as well. Uh, thanks for listening and until next time.